Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a fantastic show for you with another market legend. He's worked in distressed debt, high-yield bonds, convertibles, you name it. You probably recognize him as the co-founder of Oaktree Capital, which now has well over $100 billion in assets. He's also an author of his famous chairman memos and a couple of investing books, the most recent of which is called Mastering the Market Cycle, which we'll talk a little bit about today. We're thrilled he's here joining us. Welcome to the show, Howard Marks. Thank you very much, Matt. So this is going to be a lot of fun. And I thought we'd start out chatting a little bit, some of the ideas from your recent book, and we can veer off and go down any rabbit holes we feel like it. But let's talk about the book a little bit. I want to read a quick quote as a jumping off point, and we can go from there. And it says, and that brings us to the payoff from understanding cycles. The average investor doesn't know much about it. He doesn't fully understand the nature and importance of cycles. He hasn't been around long enough to have lived through many cycles. He hasn't read financial history and thus learn the lessons of past cycles. He sees the environment primarily in terms of isolated events, rather than taking note of reoccurring patterns and the reasons behind them. Most important, he doesn't understand the significance of cycles of what they can tell him about how to act. So let's use this as a jumping off point. Maybe give us a little overview, kind of how you think about market cycles, why it's important, and, and what investors are missing out about them. I think that you know, you have two choices in life. You can say every day is a different day. Every event is different from the last. Or you can say that there are recurring patterns, learn those patterns, understand them, and that makes life a lot easier. I've been in the investment business 50 years this summer. You know, I'm convinced that there are patterns that recur in our business. And I think by this point in time, I understand them. If you understand them, I think you can profit from them. The goal is to buy low and sell high. I think that an understanding of cycles allows you to understand when we're high and when we're low. And the key in understanding that is to understand why we're high and why we're low. That's what you know. a lot of my work is about, and that's really what the book's about. It's interesting because a lot of people, I think, think about where we are in the market cycle. Of course, they're almost always talking about equities, but, but they think about market cycles. But but I feel like kind of like what you mentioned, they think about it in a one-off way. Maybe what's your what's your framework to sort of evaluate exactly where we are? Because I know there's a lot of anecdotal evidence where you say, hey, maybe there's a the famous Business Week cover in the early 80s, the death of equities. But what's kind of the framework for analyzing cycles? How do, how do you kind of take a look at them? Rather than look at every event or input as individual, I tend to look for patterns in the things that happen in the world. You know, what are the things you want to know to evaluate the investment environment? What is the mood? Is the mood optimistic and bullish and positive, which tends to lead to high prices, which we don't want to buy in? Is it depressed? Is it sad? Is it full of regret? in which case prices may be low. And that's really, of course, where we want to be active. So one is mood. Number two is invest. Are they up? Are they positive? Are they happy with what they've done? Are they thrilled with the investment portfolios that they hold and eager to add to them, happy to increase their risk and so forth? 
Well, these are the things that lead markets to be high. Are investors sad? Are they terrified? Are they regretful? Are they hesitant to make new investments? Are they so chastened by recent events they stick to the sidelines? Again, these are the things that create bargains. We want to know that. There are, of course, quantitative things we can look at. Valuation, price earnings ratios on stocks, yields and yield spreads on bonds, transaction multiples on private equity, capitalization rates on real estate. All of these things tell us whether assets are high priced or low priced in the context of history. Point is that a cycle is an up and down oscillation around a central midpoint. We want to know the, if the midpoint, for example, is the intrinsic value of the stock, we want to know when we're above it and when we're below it. And that's really what this is all about. So if you could evaluate the mood and people's behavior and attitudes and asset pricing relative to history, you can have a good starting point on understanding where we are. One of my favorite passages in the book was recounting a conversation. This is actually from one of your memos in 07. It was about Henry Kissinger. And it said he was a member of TCW's board when I worked there. And a few times each year, I was privileged to hear him hold forth on world affairs. Someone would ask, Henry, can you explain yesterday's events in Bosnia? And he'd say, well... In 1722, the point is the chain reaction type events can only be understood in the context of what went before us. I think it's really important. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about being students of history and understanding what's happened in markets. Uh, my favorite investing book is Triumph of the Optimists, walks you know people through a lot of the histories of stock markets and bonds and bills. But for the listeners on here, you know, we we probably have some millennials listening who have only been in one market environment for the past 10 years and and probably only think that that's the way that the world always works. Maybe let's use a real world example, because I think you guys did a pretty masterful job in financial crisis. So maybe kind of use 06, 07, 08 post-financial crisis. Walk us through some of the framework of how that transpired and and how you guys kind of thought about it at the time. And just as a general framework to how to think about a cycle and sort of the not real time, but but looking back on kind of how all that went down. The global financial crisis of 07, 08 was the biggest market event since the great crash of 29 and the depression that followed. It was a major event, and we think we did a good job in that environment. And of course, there are two parts to it. What did you do in the run-up to it, and then what did you do in the event? In the years of 05 and 06, we were very leery of the market environment. We sold a lot of assets. We wound down some of our larger distressed debt funds and liquidated them and, and replaced them with smaller funds. We avoided the high yield bonds of the most highly levered LBOs. And we generally raised our standards for making new investments. Why? Did we know that the Great Recession was coming? No. Did we know that mortgage-backed securities were fallacious and were going to jeopardize the, the future of the world banks? No. Why did we do it? We did it primarily talked about the mood. I talked about the environment. We looked at the securities that were being issued. And it seemed that almost every day something was being issued that didn't deserve to get issued. We want markets to be safe and sane. We want them to be uh, investors to be balancing fear and greed, to be balancing optimism and pessimism. And most importantly, and this, this receives a chapter in the book, we want them to be appropriately risk averse. We don't want to buy at a time when other investors are oblivious to risk 
disregarding risk, bidding assets up regardless of the risk, because clearly that's an environment in which we can't get any bargain. So we want to see balanced psychology and a decent level of risk aversion. And we looked at what was happening near every day, you know, and I would go into my partner, Bruce Karsh's office, or he would go into mine, and he'd say, look at this piece of junk that got issued yesterday. There's something wrong with the market if junk like this can get issued. It was really almost as simple as that. And Buffett has a great quote, the less prudence with which others conduct their affairs, the greater the prudence with which we must conduct our own affairs. So when others are acting in such a carefree manner as to not exert a filter on the markets and not demand safety and quality, then we really should amp up our caution. And we did. And that's what turned us negative on the environment you know, five and six. Then, of course, the subprime mortgages had their problems. The financial system looked like it it was on the verge of melting down. This all culminated September 15th of 08 in the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers. Understanding, again, what we thought was going on in the environment and with other investors, we were able to become very aggressive starting on September the 16th to invest over half billion a week over the balance of 08 over the next 15 weeks. So half a billion a week for 15 weeks is a lot of money. It was close to 10 billion in total. What enabled us to do that? There were many things. There was number one, I say, you can't ignore the quantitative. And the point is that we were able to buy, for example, the senior debt of buyout companies at prices which assumed that they were worth a third or a quarter of what some great LBO firms had paid for them one or two years earlier. And they don't usually overestimate by that much. And we were able to buy from funds that were melting down and being liquidated. And you want to buy in liquidations, especially when there aren't many other buyers. And we thought there weren't many, or if any. And then finally, our experience, and I recount a great conversation in the book that I had with a a pension manager. Our experience told us that no matter what we said to people, no matter how conservative our assumptions were, all they said was, yeah, but it might be worse than that. I reached this conclusion. It was almost in the form of an epiphany that our job as investors is to be skeptical. And everybody knows that skepticism consists when they hear some fly-by-night scheme that promises profit without risk. We know that skepticism consists of saying, no, 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 that's too good to be true. What I realized at the depths of October of 08 is that skepticism also consists sometimes of saying, no, that's too bad to be true. When we can't possibly come up with an account that satisfies people's pessimism in the extreme, then we know that psychology unreasonably depressed, that means prices are probably unreasonably depressed and we should go to work. And that's what we did. Buying in the fourth quarter of 08 worked out very well. Thinking back to the crisis, there's a famous investment saying that it says, investing is the only business when things go on sale, everyone runs out of the store. And it's funny to think back to that time and it's hard to kind of relate it to particularly our younger investor friends about what a experience that's like without having been through it. So trying to explain to someone a lot of the booms and manias and busts and cycles historically, you mean talking about Japan in the you know 80s or the bricks in the mid 2000s without living through it is it's fun to read it but for a lot of people until they actually go through it I think maybe our millennials are now with some of the cryptos it's hard to explain the challenge I think for a lot of investors is they want precision they want to be able to pick the top of a cycle and pick the bottom exactly and that's not really how this 
works. It was what the takeaways from your book is, where you see signs on both sides to where you think about it. And over the, you know, your career, is there an example on the flip side where you misinterpreted a point in the market cycle where you said, man, it just feels really crazy to me, but it actually wasn't. A lot of the signs are lining up for a good buying opportunity, but but things proceeded to get worse. Every cycle is different, you know, different times, different links, different asset classes. Any Any thoughts there? You mentioned that investing is the only place where people buy less when things go on sale. And I think this is really important for investors and especially new investors to realize. Normally, look, even Buffett says, I like hamburgers. And when hamburgers go on sale, I eat more hamburgers. Everybody crowds the stores when the sales take place. And we all know about this. Investing is a place which runs contrary to the laws of supply and demand. Normally, we demand more at low prices and less at high prices. And that is, of course, makes sense, should be. What goes on? in the investment world. You buy a stock at 60, it goes to 80, and you say, you know what, I think I'm right, I'm gonna buy some more. Goes to 100, you say, now I'm sure I'm right, I'm gonna double up. So you increased the higher the price went. But what if you buy at 60 and it goes to 40? Most people say, "Mm, you know, maybe I screwed this one up, I better lighten up. And if it goes to 20, they say, I better get out now before it goes to zero. In investing, for the most part, people like them better at high prices and less well at low prices. And that is the opposite of what it should be. This idea of trying to find the bottom to buy or the top to sell is a huge mistake. There's a great saying, perfect is the enemy of good. And this is so true. Trying to find the perfect day to start buying or the perfect day to sell is impossible. We never know when we're at the top. We never know when we're at the bottom. Because, for example, what is a bottom? It's the day when the price, which has been falling, stops falling. We never know on that day. We can only know it by going on a little further and then looking back and saying, you know what? It didn't go down anymore. It started going up. That was the bottom. But we never know it contemporaneously. And if we say, is today the last day it's going to go down? Well, maybe not. I don't think so. You know, remember, it's been going down because the, the news and the interpretation and the mood and the sentiment has been so bad. It's almost impossible on that day when mood and sentiment and, and negativism reach their nadir. It's almost impossible to say, okay, this is the day we're going to start in. I don't even try to do that. We don't, at Oak Tree, we don't talk about starting to buy at bottoms or starting to sell at tops. We buy when the, pro- when the price is much less than the value, in our opinion, and we sell when the price is much more than the value. And I think that makes sense. It doesn't matter if this is the best it's ever going to get. It's still a good time to buy and a good time to sell. So now I'm going to get around to your question. What have we done wrong? And I think that the last few years have been a good example. We've been conservative for the last few years. Our mantra has been move forward, but with caution. We have insisted on a high degree of caution in the things we did. Uh, Of course, when you're cautious, you don't go up as much as the market when it rises. And that's what happened. The market has risen more than we expected. We have been cautious. So even though we've been essentially fully invested over this period, we haven't got 100% of the rise because of our caution. I still think it was the right thing to do. Nobody could have predicted that this recovery was going to go on 10 years in in the economy or that the bull market would go on 10 years or that the market would respond so positively to the Trump administration or that the Trump administration would get this degree of a tax cut passed and so forth. And, And by the way, 
if you think about it, nobody can predict and nobody should try to predict that securities that are fairly valued are going to become overvalued. Anybody who buys or holds because of the belief that something that's fully valued will become overvalued is probably making a mistake or at least embarking on a dangerous course. I think that the extent and longevity of the gains of the last few years have been beyond anticipation. I think that our holding caution was the right thing. It just didn't work in the last few years. So in some of our portfolios, perhaps rather than getting 100% of the rise, maybe we only got 95. But I think that's okay, especially because we had a conservative portfolio that would have protected us had things gone against us. And that's the key. How do you see the world today? Is it that you start to see that, hey, we're kind of in the later innings of potentially this cycle? Is is that still your feeling today? Are there any indicators or there that would argue either for that or against it? Or what what are your general thoughts? I think we're in the eighth inning. Saying we're in the eighth inning has certain connotations uh, with regard to where we think we are relative to the end of the game, where we are relative to the end of the up cycle. Bear in mind, number one, I'm a conservative person. Number two, however, assets are highly priced relative to history. Investor behavior is bullish. Risk aversion is low. People have had to drop their risk aversion in order to make a high return in today's low return world, or I should say in order to strive for a high return in today's low return world. I feel comfortable saying that I think we're in the eighth inning and that it's a time for caution. What I realized about a year ago is that when you know people ask about what inning are we in, we can say what we think. This is in baseball. We have no idea how many innings there will be in a game. In baseball, we know that if it's not tied, a regulation game will go nine innings. But in investing, it can go seven or eight or 10 or 14. There's no rule which says that this game has to end when we reach the ninth. So I think it's important not to overdo the precision with which we can make these assessments. Go back to the way we started the discussion. When people are depressed and fearful and prices are below historic levels and the the mood is negative, we want to be buyers. When people are optimistic and aggressive and prices are higher than historic levels and the mood is overwhelmingly positive, we want to reduce our risk, which is this. It's really as simple as that. I'll ask you, I'll ask your listeners, I ask myself and my colleagues all the time, which is this? Is this a time when when we are probably in a depressed part of the cycle and the future for returns is bright? Or is this a time when we're in the elevated part of a cycle and the future for returns is limited? I have no problem saying it's the latter. But if you say the latter and the downturn doesn't come for a while, then you look wrong. And there's a great saying in our business that being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. I love the baseball analogy. And I had a friend mention on Twitter the other day where they were talking about the ninth inning. And they said, well, yeah, we're in the ninth inning, but have you ever been to a baseball game? You know how long the ninth inning can last? <laughs> so, And even that, it can go into, go into extra innings. Well, it's funny because, you know, if you look around, you have a lot of our kind of friendly quant shops out there that are kind of predicting really low returns for a lot of asset classes. Research affiliates came out yesterday and said chance of people realizing a 5% real return, which is about the historical real return of, of equities going forward over the next, I think, 5, 10 years. Chance of that happening is 1%. <laughs> so so pretty yeah. pretty dour view of the world. But but it's funny because you, know, you look around 
And one of the things that people almost always expect at market peaks is sentiment. I wanted to ask you a little bit, is exuberance something that is required for the cycle to end or can they just kind of fizzle out? Because it doesn't feel like a lot of this bull market you've had over the past decade, it hasn't really felt a lot of exuberance like other bull markets have ended in. So is that a requirement? How do you think about sentiment in general? Let's introduce a new word into our discussion. Let's introduce the word excess. The mid, Remember that the midpoint the trend, the midpoint of the fluctuation is what we call the midpoint, the fair value, the intrinsic value, the right value. That's the midpoint. And the elevated parts of the cycle are when we are above that. These are periods that are characterized by excesses. I think that I think that what we've been talking about, euphoria, what was your word? Exuberance. Exuberance is a is a, a form of excess. I think it's clear that we don't want to be buyers or holders in markets that are characterized by exuberance. First of all, I think we would agree that exuberance is a form of excess about which we want to be very careful. Now, the question is, is exuberance a necessary condition for a for a high? I think it probably is. You may say even that today we don't have exuberance. I don't, I don't think we do have exuberance. What, what we have today is people investing aggressively in risk assets for the main reason that risk-free assets pay so little. You went, if we went back, let's say, 10, 11, 12 years ago, you might have had a bunch of money in a money market fund that paid five, in five-year treasuries that paid six and a half, in high-grade bonds that paid eight. Those things don't exist today. Instead of five, six and a half, and eight, the returns on those things are more like one, two, and four. All the money that 10, 11, 12 years ago might have wanted to be in those kinds of assets has flown out the risk curve to riskier assets, including the stock market, including private equity, including private debt and so forth, and driven up the prices to the point where the cycle is elevated. I would not say we have exuberance today or euphoria. We have people, I I call these people handcuffed volunteers. These are people who are reaching for more risk, not because they want to, but because they have to, to make the returns they need. I think that even in the absence of euphoria today, one of the ways I say it is that people may not be thinking bullish, but I think they're acting bullish. And their bullish behavior makes the market risky. And that's what we have to focus on. And if it's true that, that the market is risky because of that bullish behavior, then we should cut our risk, even though those people may not be described as euphoric or exuberant. Yeah, we actually talk a lot about that with equities where you have the scenario where we look at some of the sentiment surveys. Favorite stat is the AAII's bullish bearish survey showed the highest stock bullishness in December of 1999, the literal worst time ever (laughs) to be bullish on stocks. And when were people most despondent was in March 2009. You literally could not come up with a more ridiculous possibility. So you're not seeing the extremes yet. But if you look at some other indicators like percentage net worth, household assets that are in equities, it's kind of do what I say, do what I do. They Most people are highly exposed. They're just not particularly excited about it. But you're starting to see a little bit of the mania in some other areas, certainly with some of the Tilray stock last week and the cannabis space. I'm going to read you. Here's, here's a new data point for you. This is a pitch I got last Friday. Subject line of the email was how this model turned entrepreneur created the cannabis tech company. And within this email, it's talking about 
I'd love to connect you with the CEO, a former model, and is launching the world's first cannabis co-working space in Hollywood, California. So pretty close to Oak Tree HQ. Favorite part, it says, is the leader in the space with this company's, I'm not going to mention the name, Blockchain Cannabis Solution. So within one company, we have co-working, <laughs> blockchain, cannabis, and a model. I may send a Jeff, our, our single producer, to go, meet, to go meet this company, do a little due diligence. That's a good story, but, and it's an example of when, when markets lose track of reality. You know, back in, in 2017, in the height of the, of the Bitcoin boom, there was a, a very banal company with an ordinary product. It was in financial trouble, which put the word Bitcoin in its name and the stock soared. So I think that's just a typical example. And you can go back to our history. I mean, nifty 50s and some of the early tech boom of the later part of the century with a lot of the electronic or computer sort companies and adding things to their names. And the most obvious, of course, would be the dot com in the 90s and, and more recently blockchain, I guess, and, and cannabis. But yeah, you're starting to see pockets of it in certain areas. In other areas, you know, we look at a lot of the global equity markets. And I think the average global equity market is down about 20% from peak. So there's a lot of a lot of pain elsewhere in the world. It's just not the US, which is responsible. There was a great chart the other day responsible for over 100% of the equity returns globally this year, because a lot of the rest of the world is down. So shifting gears a little bit, favorite part about the book was it was actually early in the book was actually kind of the practical advice of how to put this to work. So a lot of people listening say, okay, I'm going to become a student of history. I'm going to study cycles. I'm going to kind of try to implement this. And I think some of the advice you have about how to do it, and I don't want to steal your thunder, but I want to read this, where you're talking about how to kind of think about this. And you said the key word is calibrate. The amount you have invested, your allocation of capital among the various possibilities and the riskiness of the things you own all should be calibrated along a continuum that runs from aggressive to defensive. When we're getting value cheap, we should be aggressive. When we're getting value expensive, we should pull back. Calibrating one's portfolio's position is what this book is mostly about. Could you expand on that a little bit? I mean, I know we've touched on it during pieces. As far as the practical implementation for people listening to this, the kind of general thoughts on how to actually put this study of cycles into, into practice. You mentioned a memo that I put out in July of 2017 about what was going on in the market, in my opinion. It attracted a lot of attention. One TV investment analyst said, Howard Marks says it's time to get out. And you know, my reaction is, there are two things I would never say. One is get out, and the other is it's time. I'm, not, I'm never that sure. And I don't think that anybody can be that sure that you should be out as opposed to in, and that today is the time to do it. If your listeners don't feel that degree of conviction, and certitude, I think that's the right thing, not the wrong thing. That's what, thus I say calibrate. It's not a matter of in or out or today or tomorrow, all of which have so much precision and definiteness to them, but rather think of it as, as a speedometer from zero to 100. And zero is maximum defense, all cash, and 100 is maximum offense, fully invested in aggressive and risky assets. My reference to calibrating is really saying, where should we be in between those extremes of zero to 100? Nobody should run his portfolio that today I'm zero and two weeks I'm 100 and then I go back to zero. We should adjust moderately within the range. First of all, I would encourage each of your readers to think about 
where from zero to 100 they should normally be. Think about your age. Think about your earnings. Think about your future. Think about how much assets you have. Think about your circumstances, how much assets you might need in a pinch. Think about your psychological makeup and your ability to live with risk. You might say, you know what? I'm a young person. I have a bright future. I have a good income. I'm making more money than I need every day. I'm putting some aside uh, into the market. I've been through this before. I can stand to live with fluctuations. I think I'm a 75 or an 80. My normal risk posture is 75 or 80. So I think it's, it's important to do that. Of course, it's really important to do it accurately. And one of the problems is that people in good times, people overestimate their ability to live with pain. And I remember the people who back in 97, when the tech stocks were booming, people saying, oh, you know what? I wouldn't mind if I lost 30% of my 401k portfolio I'm up so much, it'd be fine. Believe me, when they went down 40%, they weren't fine. So I would encourage everybody who's listening to try to think about their, what their normal risk posture should be, at least to do it in the form of my speedometer from zero to 100. So we have a person who says, I'm normally a 75. Now, the next question is, okay, then where should you be today? Today, are we in the depressed part of the cycle and are things undervalued relative to history and are people moping around and unwilling to take risk in which environment I would say you should amp up your risk because you'll be getting a lot of bargains? Or are we in the elevated part of the cycle where everybody's happy, nobody sees anything to worry about, everybody thinks risk is their friend, that the more risk they take, the more money they'll make, and so securities are priced above their historic levels and the mood is very positive, which means that there's probably a lot of optimism priced into every security. If you think you're in the elevated portion of the cycle, then I think you want to turn the speedometer down and maybe you want to only be a 50 or a 60 at that time. You don't have to have the certainty to go from your normal 75 to zero in order to uh, do a good job of, of managing your assets. An adjustment within the range, I think, is all that most people can do. I think it's great advice. You know, I think the challenge, so many people want to think in terms of binary outcomes. They either want to be in or they want to be out. They want to be cheering for the market or they want to be cheering for it to go down. And there's a great quote from Bogle who says, you know, he does a 50-50 stocks bonds portfolio. And he's when asked why, he says, well, I want to, I spend half the time worrying I have too much in stocks and half the time worrying I have too much in bonds. But this concept <laughs> of, of calibrate, I think is so, I'm going to steal it and certainly use it with, with conversations with clients. We, we had on Rob Arnott earlier in the year, and he had a great quote that's pretty similar where he called it over rebalancing. So if you had a target portfolio and, and equities were down a lot, you may rebalance and you may rebalance a little bit more. So if you're 60, 40, you may say, you know what, I'm going to be 70, 30 now because stocks are at a five PE, or maybe things are starting to get a little bubbly, take it down to 50, 50 or 40, 60. And I think one of the biggest challenges for a lot of investors, and this isn't just individuals, this is almost every professional investor I talk to, and this institutions are a little different. So they, they tend to have a written investment plan, a policy portfolio, but most investors are kind of shooting from the hips. We try to encourage all the investors we talk to to actually at least write down the basics of how they're going to think about the world because it's 
as everyone knows with dieting and everything else, if you don't have kind of a written plan and rules, it's really easy to, to stray and, and do the dumb things behaviorally. So calibrate is, is my favorite phrase in the book, probably next to disprefer. You know, so Howard, you, you've seen a lot of cycles and, and time tends to season an investor. I think most investors we have on this show been through the agony as well as the ecstasy of, of making and losing money. But, but I'm curious to what extent over the years you've changed your investment approach. So you've been through a lot of different cycles. And is there anything that the Howard of 10, 20, 30 years ago would have done that's a lot different than the Howard of today? I don't think that I would say that I've changed that much. I have evolved because I now think about the environment in the systematic way that I'm encouraging you and your listeners to do. I didn't always know these things. I didn't always do these things. And as you say, I've lived through a lot of cycles and I've, I've come to these conclusions. That's a very important example. Another great example, and I tell this in the book, 50 years ago when I started, uh, I worked for a New York bank and the bank practiced, like all the other banks, something called Nifty 50 investing. And it bought the stocks of the 50 greatest, fastest growing companies in America, IBM, Xerox, Kodak, Polaroid, Avon, Merck, Lilly, Texas Instruments, Hewlett-Packard. These companies were so adored and people were so sure that nothing could go wrong with them. And people were so convinced that they would be fast growing in terms of profits that their prices just got too high. And if you had joined my bank when I did and bought these stocks and held them for five years, you would have lost almost all your money. And that's an amazing thing. They were great companies and you could have lost as I say, almost all your money, 80, 90% in many cases. 10 years later, I switched to high-yield bonds and I was asked to start the bank's portfolio in high-yield bonds, which was one of the first and first from financial institutions. Now, I'm dealing with the worst companies in America. I say that a little bit ironically, but they, you know, by definition, high-yield bond issuers are not guilt-edge companies and I'm making money steadily and safely. So, what did that experience tell you? If you can lose a lot of money in the best companies and make a lot of money steadily and safely in the worst companies, what are the lessons? The main lesson is it's not what you buy, it's what you pay for it that determines whether something is a good investment or a bad investment. One of the ways I like to say it, good investing is not a function of buying good things. It's a function of buying things well. People should think about that. And they should think about it until they understand it. Because if you don't know the difference between buying a good asset and making a good investment, then you're not going to be a successful investor. Good investing comes from buying things for less than their intrinsic value. As my own experience has shown, there is no asset which is so good that it can't become overpriced and thus a bad investment. There are very few assets which are so terrible that they can't become underpriced, and that's a good investment. You know, it's a simple statement, but I would emphasize this to your listeners without limitation. Uh, you have to understand the difference between a good asset and a good investment. I have made that evolution over these years, but right now it, it, it has become second nature. That's really my other example now. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, we, we talk about that quite a bit when we're talking about global investing. You know, the average American, but also every country in the world tends to have a very large home country bias. And they and the average American puts 70% in the US for equities, also for, for bonds 
is even more. And when it should only be, say, 50, and we say a lot of cases, you know, hey, look at a lot of these countries, they may seem scary, but the valuations tend to be a lot lower. But one of the challenges for a lot of professionals is that the career risk creeps in. You can always justify a US-based 60-40, nifty 50, whatever it may be. But if you own a bunch of these other countries or do things that are uncomfortable, a lot of professionals that that ends up being get hung out to dry. So it's and can get fired. So we often tell people it that's the challenge, whether it's doing the right thing or trying to, to balance that. For a lot of people, it's pretty tough. A couple more questions. We got to wind it down. What are you thinking about these days? So you, uh, and I can pose this question with two outcomes. You can pick either one or both. Is there anything for someone who's a student of history that's got you particularly excited? Any topics, any ventures, any sort of ideas that you're particularly curious about as we wind down 2018? And on the flip side, is there anything that's got you really stressed out? First of all, I sleep pretty well at night. There's nothing keeping me up. Ironically, as a conservative investor, what I worry about most is being too conservative too soon. I think caution is the right thing now, but I've thought it for a while and it hasn't worked. In the last several years, the highest returns have gone to the person who took the most risk. That's only me when I think that the cycle is extremely depressed, and I haven't thought that for, for several years. We, we have a cautious portfolio. We'll continue to be cautious. Will that be the right thing or the wrong thing? We will find out. That's one of the things, I guess, that keeps me up, that the market and the economy do better than I expect. What do you get excited about? The big, easy, exciting money is made in investing in and especially made safely by doing the things that other people are unwilling to do. Being a contrarian is the essence of good investing. That doesn't mean you necessarily do things that everybody refuses to do. You start looking at those things. So what are the things that, that have been catching the most grief lately and that uh, people are most down on? China, emerging markets in particular, Argentine and Turkey maybe. You mentioned that things are doing less well abroad than they are in the States. Most markets are not up like the U.S. stock market is. That's uh, very much worth noting. The contrarian, the bargain hunter, the value investor right now is, is looking largely outside the U.S. We know that these things are cheaper than they are inside the U.S. Many of them are just down and down substantially. But of course, that in itself is not the buy signal. Is it down enough or the right amount or too little? Even though things are way down, we still have to put an intrinsic value on assets. We still have to know whether the price is more or less than the intrinsic value. The contrarian, the bargain hunter, starts off by looking at the things that have been doing poorly. I can sympathize because you just named all the countries in our largest fund. <laughs> so we've been uh, happy holders of a lot of those, but it's been a little tougher this past quarter. question we always ask our podcast guests, going back over your career, and this can be can be good, it can be bad, it can be anything, but what has been your most memorable investment? Has there been anything that really sticks out as, as the most memorable investment of, of your career? And that can be personal too. We made an investment in 09 in a packaged food company called Pierre Foods, which was having a real tough time, which needed a restructuring. Uh, the debt was well underwater. We bought the debt. We got control through the debt. We restructured the company financially, brought in new management, changed some of the strategies, made some add-on acquisitions, 
took the company public, eventually did a transformative merger with a very large company, excellent company in the same field. We're able to exit that just a couple of years ago. Maybe it was, I think it was probably in 17. So we probably were eight years from start to finish and we made 23X on that investment. We've never made anything close to that before. That's far from typical. It was an ideal situation, timed exactly right. Never thought we would make a return like that when we went in. Clearly had a great outcome that we're extremely happy with. So some of my Oak Tree colleagues pulled that off over that period of time. And it's very easy to remember a success like that. That's interesting. And it's funny too, there's the challenge when you're licking your chops as a value investor. And Buffett, of course, talks a lot about this when you're seeing all these opportunities, exciting, and there's still a little anxiety. And for me, this is why I'm a quant, by the way, because I have too many emotions. I have every single behavioral bias. Was the decision easy at the time? Was it something where you're you're saying, man, this is easy to pull the trigger? Or was there still some element of the world's still ending? This was a hard uh, trigger to pull. I don't think it was a tough decision. We did take a very large position in debt, which was sufficient to give us control. So by definition, we made a sizable uh, financial commitment to a company that was troubled. We thought we had value, emotion, and the cycle on our side. And if you combine that with good analysis, which gives you positive signals, I think I think that's the that's the best you can have. Howard, it's been a blast today. I've had so much fun chatting with you. Where can everybody find more about you if they want to keep up with your writings, everything else? What's uh, what's the best place? We've been talking about some of the memos I've written over the years. I started in ninety. The, the newest one went out just today. How many are you up to in total? You know, I don't count, but I'm sure it's I'm sure it's well over a hundred at this point. Your listeners can find them all at the www.oaktreecapital.com/slash/insights under the heading of the chairman's memos. They can read them for the last 29 years. They can sign up for a service that will notify them when one comes out. Then, as you mentioned, of course, my book is coming out, Mastering the Market Cycle. And I like, in particular, the subtitle, getting the, mo- getting the Odds on Your Side. We can't be sure of success. We can't be sure of avoiding bad outcomes. But we can, through diligence, attentiveness, insight, and especially understanding cycles, I think we can get the odds on our side. We can have more invested and at risk when we're low in the cycle and less invested and at risk when we're high in the cycle. And that's about the best anybody can do. Perfect way to end the podcast. I'm going to add one more quote that Charlie, you related that Charlie Munger said to you, which is, investing is not supposed to be easy. Anyone who finds it easy is stupid. (laughs) Howard Marks, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's been a blast. Readers, we will add show notes to the buy the book, to all Howard's memos, everything else we talked about today on mebfavor.com forward slash podcasts, where you can also find all the archives. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Breaker, which is our favorite. And of course, if you're loving the show, hating the show, leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>